Well, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today as we, uh, as we celebrate together the goodness of God. Uh, I'm Dave Fields. I'm our lead pastor here at Summit. And we just want to welcome you uh, and thank you for connecting in this way. I've quoted from this on occasion before, but it's worth coming back to. American novelist David Foster Wallace, he gave a speech, a commencement speech, to the graduating class of Kenyon College in 2005. And it's probably worth noting that, um, that Wallace uh, is not himself a believer. Uh, he would say that he's an agnostic. He doesn't even know what to think of the God question exactly. But here's what he tells us. He says this, There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we have is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and, and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly, ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. Do you see what he's saying here? Our hearts are constantly worshiping. There is a default setting of the human heart that we can't shut off. You will be loving something as your first and best. Everybody worships. Wallace is right. And we do it all the time. And we're in Acts chapter 17 today in our series through the book of Acts. And that is one of the key issues that we will bump up against this morning. It's often called idolatry in the Bible. What does that mean? It means worshiping something or someone other than the one true God. And so let's just pray as we prepare to hear and uh, ask God to speak to our hearts today. Let's pray together. Loving, living God, we give you thanks for this text and all you want to say to us through it today, give us ears to hear. Amen. Now, I want to invite you to follow along in your Bibles or your Bible app. Uh, and we're in Acts chapter 17. And we're going to start reading at chapter, uh, at verse 16 in a minute here. But let me just kind of sum up where we're at so far. Last week in Acts 16, we saw Paul and Silas. They're thrown in jail after they've begun to spread the message of Jesus in the city of Philippi. And then they're released. And what do they do? Well, they don't bury themselves in self-pity. Their backs are scourged. They had been beaten, we read, severely. And yet, they keep going with the mission. Why? Because they have the best news ever. And they've been commissioned by God to bring it everywhere. The best news that God is for his world that he has made and he's made a way home for us to come to the father through trust in Jesus the son and so they set out from Philippi for Thessalonica and we just need to pause and appreciate this for a second um, their resilience and dedication see they've just been beaten and now they set off on foot and I did the math 
they're going on a 147-kilometer trip on foot. And when they arrive, they do what is typical. They go to the Jewish synagogue, and they begin to announce that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the king, the rescuing one. And we should note the language that is used here. It says that he reasoned with them. Here and in Berea, where they're going to travel to next, they're reasoning from the scriptures because they're talking to people who, well, they're in a synagogue. They believe in the scriptures. They respect and honor what God has said. And they're pointing out now that Jesus is the one to whom all of this, uh, the, the Hebrew scriptures have been pointing all along. However, after they announce this news and there's believers now planted in both of those cities, they are chased out of Thessalonica and even Paul has to leave Berea because of the jealousy of some of those Jewish people who don't accept the message. And they're after him and they're after his life. And so he leaves, he ends up getting on a boat going to Athens and now he's waiting there for his co-workers to join him soon. Let's pick up in verse 16 now. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. His internal, his guts, it says, essentially in the Greek text, he's just like disturbed on the inside. And it says that the city is, basically it's drowning in idols is another way we could say it. And now before we move on, let me just, focus in on that word idols for a second. Paul's looking around, he's certainly seeing statues and altars that pay tribute to false gods. But we should note too, idolatry runs much deeper than carved out statues. Uh, John Stott, the preacher teacher, he defines it well. He says this, idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols too. An idol is a god substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy, that's an idol. So an idol, you see, is a God substitute. And that's key. Anything that we substitute in the place of God, that thing is an idol. In fact, that's at the heart of what the Bible means when it speaks of sin. It means to displace God from God's rightful place as our loving Leader, it's to look to something or someone else to be the place that we find our value, our meaning, our sense of significance. And so Paul begins walking through the city. He's grieved in his heart. He's provoked, we read. This idolatry has stirred up Paul's spirit. Now, before we move on from that, um, we just need to see a significant point here. There's this song by Rat Matt Redman that we sometimes sing, and we hear these words. It goes like this, Let worship be the fuel for mission's flame. We're going with a passion for your name. We're going for we care about your praise. Send us out. And then the chorus says this, You should be the praise of every tongue. You should be the joy of every heart. Now that Jesus would be the praise of every tongue, the joy of every heart, that's what drives Paul in this passage. And you know what? That's our motivating factor for mission as well. That God deserves all the glory. That people who are longing for and searching for joy in this life, that we would see them come to find their joy in the, in the one who made them for himself. 
And I want to have that kind of passion that Paul has here, that when I see people um, floundering for loving something other than God, that it would be the desire for God's name to be glorified that drives me to want to share about Jesus with them. So what does Paul do? Well, verse 17. So he reasoned. Same thing we saw back in Thessalonica. He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating like foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. That's like their city council, basically. So they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then, and then Luke adds this little editorial comment, which is kind of cheeky, actually, but it's, it's quite good. He says, verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So now Paul has been brought before this council. They've asked him to share. So he has to provide a defense of what he's been teaching and proclaiming in the city. And so he does. But it will be more than simply a defense. He, it will actually become transformed into a preaching opportunity for him. So let's listen in, but I want us to listen from at least two angles. Uh, first, we want to see what Paul is teaching, but more than, we want to see how he's saying it, because both what he's teaching and how he's teaching it, or how he's saying it, um, are there to encourage our hearts, but more than that, I think this text equips us for how we can engage with our culture, which in some ways is not so dissimilar to that of Athens. So look at verse 22 now. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Notice first, Paul addresses this council in a way that really fits the situation. He shows that he's respectful and he communicates in a way that this culture would understand. He's truly respectful in addressing this culture. Uh, do they take their religion very seriously? Yes, they do. And, and he notes that. But here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, hey, you guys are very spiritual people and whatever or however you want to worship, that's just great. No, Paul is actually going to issue a major critique but he is respectful in doing that. He's holding together both truth and love, and, and they're not two separate things to him. They work together. And you know, um, this is really what we read in 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Let me share that with you. It, this is instruction for the church, living in a, 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 you know, a pluralistic, a religiously pluralistic society. Here's what we're told. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, or set apart Christ as Lord. May he be the center of all that you are and all that you do. 
always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. And remember, that's what Paul has been doing in each of these cities. He's been reasoning. There's, this is a really intelligent, thoughtful explanation of the Christian faith. And that's a part of our ministry too. But here's what I want to emphasize. Look at the next line. says this, but do so with gentleness and respect. Like being a jerk, <laughs> being insensitive or arrogant. That approach we read according to the scriptures, that's, it's just, it's, it's out. It's, it's not acceptable. Why? Because it doesn't picture Jesus like his character or his life in us. Second thing we see here, he engages with his culture. He listens. He observes what's happening around him. Look at what he does in verse 23 again. Paul says, he walked around and saw just how religious the Athenians were, and he paid attention to their objects of worship. And see, in order to speak to the heart issues in his culture, Paul cared enough to be familiar with the idols of his city. And I think we need to do the same in our ministry setting in this city. See, real connection with our community and our neighbors, those we love and that we're called to serve, that's going to come as we listen to those around us. So we gain an understanding of what our neighbors love, what they're after, what they're seeking. And it's in listening to the yearnings of people's hearts that we actually find points of connection. You know, when I'm talking with someone about, about, about faith, about, about Jesus, always begins with me just asking good questions and then listening, like really listening. Like I ask things like this, what do, what do you believe about this or that? <laughs> and then I just pay attention to the answer. And it's only after listening, that's when we begin to hear the real sort of issues and questions and longings. And then we're, we're able to respond and connect to those pieces. And that's actually what we see next in what Paul does here. When he says, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you claim to worship. That's what I'm going to proclaim to you. <laughs> now, no, notice, this is a really bold move. This is a Jewish man, and he is challenging the education board of one of the most intellectually renowned cities in history. Like, ever heard of Socrates? Or Aristotle? Or Plato? All of them, Athenians. Athens is the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire. And here we have this Jewish man. And remember last week, if you, if you listened in, we saw that Jews were looked down in this, on in this culture. And so there's this Jewish man who shows up and says, hey, let me tell you what you yourselves claim to be ignorant of. <laughs> Bold move. No kidding. But this is really our, our third point that we got to look at. He offers a challenge to how they're thinking. Or to put it in fancy sort of theological lingo, he would be offering an epistemological challenge to how they think. He's actually saying this. He's saying we can know God. And he speaks very clearly about the God who reveals God's own self through the Bible, through history, and most clearly through person of Jesus Christ. And we can do the same, actually. Of course, there's a great deal of mystery about God. God is far greater than we can fathom. 
I've heard it put like this. If we could, um, if God were small enough for our minds, he wouldn't be big enough for our needs. That's true. I would also say if God were small enough for our minds, we wouldn't be talking about God anymore. But here's what we can know. We can know everything we need to know in order to come into a vibrant, loving relationship with God and to live in this world in a way that glorifies him and fulfills our role as God's image bearers. God reveals enough, partly through nature, And the scriptures tell us that, that God shows himself through the natural world around us. And that's why science matters. That's why studying the natural world matters, because we're actually um, God himself. His order is revealed through nature. So that's, that's a piece of it, but more. We know God through the scriptures, through the way that God has interacted with people throughout history, and that gets recorded in the spirit inspired scriptures. But we see God's self-revelation most perfectly through his son Jesus, who is God himself in the flesh, shows us what God is like. And we can point people to all of those places. Listen to what Paul says next about God. You see, Paul connects with the culture, but he does so in order to critique it and ultimately correct their vision. Connect to critique and correct. Bold, yes, very. But let's see how he does it. Well, he starts, his here is kind of on a gradual ramp. He connects with what many of them believe already. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, this, as you probably notice, is a straight-up critique of idol worship in Athens. Here, Paul is telling his audience about the one true God as described in the Bible. He's the creator and sustainer of life. He gives us our next breath. John Stott, I think, says it well. He says, any attempt to limit or localize the creator God to imprison him within the confines of man-made buildings, structures, or concepts is ludicrous. True that. (laughs) But notice something about the method. Paul isn't quoting the Bible. He doesn't give chapter and verse here. Not directly. He knows that's not what this audience is going to connect with. Unlike when he's in the synagogue where he's free to quote chapter and verse and it actually matters to do so. There, he reasons from the scriptures. Here, he knows that he's free to summarize the main ideas of the story of scripture to tell it in a way that his audience can understand. In fact, at this point in the message, Paul is still on common ground with at least the Stoic philosophers in his audience. They would have agreed with everything he's said so far. Even though in their minds, they're still thinking uh, their concept of God is, well, it's Zeus, not the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ, not at this point yet. And Paul will get there, though. So he's still building common ground with his audience. He's thinking, and now thinking about today and what we do, this tells us it's appropriate to speak about God with others truthfully, but in a language that's very accessible to them. 
like spouting off chapter and verse, it may not be very useful in speaking with people about God who have no background with the Bible, not initially at least. So when people ask me what I believe uh, as a Christian, boy, if they have no prior background with the Bible, I often summarize the story of the Bible for them. But doing this obviously requires that I myself have spent lots of time in the scriptures themselves, like internalizing its message, getting to know those main themes, indwelling the story as my own story. See, part of the reason I I read the Bible uh, daily is because I want to hear from God. I want him to shape my heart through his words. But you know what? Another reason that I read it is so that I can learn to convey its message, the realities it teaches, in a very reflexive and natural way when I have conversations with people. Some of you might be thinking like, yeah, you know what? I would would really like to get more familiar with the scriptures in that way. But where do I start? Well, I, I mean, I could invite you to join me and others who are simply reading through the New Testament one chapter a day, Monday to Friday, throughout this year. Um, I've been posting just a reminder each day, either through our website or through our Facebook group called Rooted, um, a scripture reading community. You can sign up and join us. And that just helps you to stay on track with having a plan to read. But also, I provide a little bit of context in the blog post that I I point. So please join us for that journey if if you want to get more familiar with the scriptures yourself. But now, let's look at what Paul says next. Verse 26. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, this is an incredible move. You see, the Athenians, they believed they were made from the land of their province, of Attica. And that actually made them superior to everyone else. They had a sense of ethnic superiority because of their creation story. But Paul appeals to a different concept of creation. The creation story of the Bible where because humans all share the same source and background, no one can claim superiority over anyone else. So yes, Paul connects, but he also critiques and corrects their vision. That's the fourth point. Paul connects with the culture, but he doesn't capitulate to it. And capitulate, that's just a word that means he doesn't give over the true ideas about God to the culture in which he speaks. He quotes their own Greek philosophers. And in a positive sense, in agreement, at least with whatever part he can affirm, he does in order to preach the gospel. Like when he says, he is not far from any one of us, he's actually quoting a Stoic philosopher there. Now, Paul is still speaking truthfully about the nearness of God to us based on what the scriptures say. He's not giving up the uniqueness of the message, but he continues to connect with the audience wherever and however he can. 
Next, he quotes Epimenides, who is a a poet who said, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then he says this, as some of your own poets have said, and he quotes Arathus, another Greek poet. We are his offspring. So you see what Paul does here. He finds out what is true in this culture. And every culture is going to have those aspects because God is a God of grace. God is the creator. Every human culture is going to have some aspects of the truth that even if they don't recognize where it's from, that they're speaking. And we can connect with those truthful elements of every culture. And he does that. But here's what else he does. Paul is actually emptying out the referent of the quotes he's making. See, he empties out of the quote the idea that it's going to be about Zeus. Why? He, he refills that sense with what he's about to say next, where it gets very specific that he's going to talk about the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ. So he affirms what he can, and then he rebaptizes and draws out the truthfulness wherever he can. And so again, this is our, our, our fourth point, you say, is that we connect with our culture, but we don't give up the truth of God in the process. And you might have noticed that in our preaching here at Summit Drive, it's pretty normal for us to make uh, reference to films and, and books and music from our surrounding culture. And sometimes it's, it's in a negative way, but most often, uh, I'm going to draw on that in a positive sense to show where the truth of our culture is speaking, but then to dig underneath of it as well. Like, for example, we started with that quote from David Foster Wallace. I mean, his main point is profound and true, but he didn't even realize how true it was that what he was sharing was exactly what the Bible teaches about idols. That's listening to the culture and affirming what is, what is true to use it as a connecting point. This is what gives us reason to keep reading the newspaper and novels that are popular in our world to watch the films, to listen to the music, to hear the yearning and heartbreak and the sense of seeking that is present in every culture and then to find those points of connections. What this doesn't mean is that we simply become uncritical consumers of pop culture. That's not what I'm arguing, folks. It means being able to hear the stories in order to connect, critique, and correct. Ultimately, to tell the better story. Because there is a true story that our world desperately needs to hear. That provides the life that we're ultimately longing for. And that's what Paul does next. He draws the story to its conclusion, its logical end. So Paul's just quoted Erratus. We are of his offspring, but listen to what he does with that. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, pointing back to that Erratus quote, We should not think that the divine being, speaking of God, is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. See, he's pointing out, Paul is pointing out the inconsistency within their own philosophy. He shows just how illogical idol worship is, using their own poets to do it. That's clever. That's reasoning. Verse 30, in the past... God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That means to turn to God. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice 
by the man he has appointed, referring to Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, hey, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So we have to notice the irony here just for a second. Uh, Paul has been brought before the council, and he's on trial, you might say. But now we find at the end of this message, Paul is no longer on trial. It's actually his accusers who must give account for their idolatry. You see, we just need to pay attention to this for a second. Uh, Paul's message is really good news for those who are honestly seeking what is true. There is time for his hearers to repent, to turn to God. Yes, God overlooked that ignorance in the past, but not anymore, Paul says. They have heard the truth, and now they need to respond. And that's, that's the last point I want to show us here. Paul gives an appropriate opportunity for response, and we need to do the same in our conversations with others. And it will always be the case that some will laugh. Yes, that's true still today. But others will want to hear more. And some even believe at that point. Should we really expect, when we share the good news of Jesus, anything different than that? I I don't think so. And like Paul, I pray that we would keep being faithful in our engagement with the world in ways that connect, critique, and correct now, though, for those who are Christians, it is our great pleasure and responsibility. Just to recap, number one, that we share the story of God with deep respect for those we speak with. Two, by engaging the culture in order to, three, provide a challenge to how people think, which, four, means connecting with our culture, but not giving in or capitulating to false views of God. And finally, offering an opportunity for others to learn more to keep the conversation going, and to respond with faith in Jesus. So this text gives us a way of connecting with our culture, which I think it does very well. But it does more than that. It actually speaks to our own hearts too. Remember those instructions in 1 Peter 3 about giving a reason for our hope and with respect and gentleness? Just remember, all of that was based on, was predicated on the fact that we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. See, it all really begins there. And I think this text actually gives us an opportunity to just pause over the question of maybe what or who is first place in my heart today. We were made for right relationship with God who made us to love him and and, and to worship him as first and best. But anytime we replace God with any substitute, We end up in in slavery, actually. Slavery? Why? Well, here's why. One pastor, I think, says says it really well. Uh, Tim Keller says this, everyone has to live for something. And we do. And if that something is not God, then we are driven by that thing we live for, by overwork to achieve it, by inordinate fear if it's threatened, by deep anger if it's being blocked and inconsolable despair if it is lost. 
Well, how does this relate for us? Well, just think of it this way. If, if I make my reputation the most important thing to me, man, I'm going to be willing to lie to protect my name. Or if I make wealth or things my God, I will be tempted to bend the rules or step over people to get what I want, to get more. And notice what this is saying to God. It says, I don't believe your love or goodness toward me. I don't value you and your ways as much as I value having this thing. It's more important to me than you are, so I'm willing to bend the truth to step over others to get it. (laughs) So, as I read that, you might be thinking of some of those pieces in your own heart, those things that you'd be willing to bend the truth to get. And you might be wondering, like I've had people talk to me in the past, like how do you root out the idols of your heart? What do you do now? Uh, I can't go into tons of depth, but let me give you a few ideas. Number one, we have to see what won't work. See, often faith communities define sin as simply breaking God's laws. And now that's partly true. That's a part of it, but it's only a small part of it. There's much more there. See, this approach to sin just focuses on outward behaviors. For example, um, it's true that lying, a behavior, that's sin, right? I mean, God has told us in the Ten Commandments, you shall not lie. And we agree with it. Most of us agree that honesty is still the best policy, that lying isn't good for us or our relationships. We'd rather be trusted and trusting, right? So when we lie, we're going to feel this deep sadness and failure. We might even be fiercely angry with ourselves, like, I did it wrong. I need to do it better next time. Okay, the problem is recognizing your moral failure and repenting of that behavior won't really lead to a deep life change. Now, it's important to recognize that sin for what it is and to confess it, absolutely. But if that's all you do, it's not going deep enough. Simply saying to yourself, self, you shouldn't have done that. Or you should have done that. Do better next time. Boy, that's insufficient to actually produce a transformed Christ-like character. Why? Because even if I repent of certain behaviors, the reason for the behavior in the first place still remains unchanged. Uh, Let me give you another example. Many parents, maybe even particularly moms, feel great pressure today. If we believe that we need to parent perfectly, or if we look to our children to be kind of our reason for life, the ultimate of our hearts, then if they rebel against us, we're going to be furious with them. Or we'll be devastated and depressed if they fail in any way. If they make us as parents look bad, well, we'll feel like we're failures. We'll be crushed. And we'll very likely put an enormous amount of pressure on our kids to be perfect and to perform. And we'll end up crushing them. We'll be putting unfair demands on them. But here's the thing. If we simply repent of the behavior of maybe getting angry with our kids or putting pressure on them when they don't meet expectations, I mean, we might feel guilty. We might repent for that behavior, but our hearts won't be changed. Why? Because the original issue, the deeper issue, the sin under the sin, the idolatry of putting our kids at the center of our hearts, it remains our deepest affection. See, until I repent of putting my kids there at the center of my life, 
and replacing that affection with love for God, I will continue to go through that pattern of perfectionism and putting crushing demands on my kids. Or follow me in this madness for a second, maybe my parenting is near perfect. And my kids are perfectly well behaved. I told you this is just following me into madness, right? That is not true. But what if I did get it all perfect? If my kids and my parenting are at the center of my heart, would it really be enough? That's my question. Would I really be satisfied at the deepest heart level? Now, there's a section from a song by Dustin Kentsrew. Here's how the words go. Though every soul would hold my name in honor and truest love were always at my side, my praises sung by grateful sons and daughters, my soul would never be satisfied. Why not? Well, because of what he sings in the chorus. It's not enough. It never was. It's not enough to make me whole. You see, our hearts were made to be satisfied when God is at the center of them. St. Augustine, writing in the um, late 4th, early 5th century, he, he says it like this. He says, you, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And I really believe Augustine is right. So we need to recognize what is at the center of my heart. Maybe it's success. Like I'm just driven like when I fail, that's my deepest fear. And when I succeed, I feel like I'm, I feel boosted for a bit, but then I'm struggling to succeed again. Or maybe it's a relationship with another or a desire to be just affirmed by others. I just need that affirmation. It may even be independence for you. This idea of like, I don't need anything. I don't need anybody. So I don't have idols. Well, that independence itself is your idol. You don't want to be responsible to anybody. But God made you to be in interdependence with others. What's the way forward? It's to, it is to confess not just the sin, but the sin under the sin. The idolatry that I've loved something better than you, God. And when we confess that, we remind our hearts of God's forgiveness for he promises it. And then we welcome his love and validation and say, God, be the first and center again. Then we can rejoice, really rejoice. See, our rejoicing comes from rehearsing the reality that God has come to save us, to love us, to do that renewing work in our hearts through Jesus Christ. That's what we do as we worship. When you make a priority of listening to God and responding in love and faith and adoration, you're saying again, God, you are first in my heart. When we read the scriptures and we pray, what we're doing is trying to refocus and recenter ourselves with God at the middle of it all. But we have a choice to make each day. Who will I worship? What will be the most fundamental to my being? Uh, Brennan Manning puts it well. He says it like this, and this is in closing. If I must seek an identity outside of myself, then the accumulation of wealth, power, and honor allures me. Or I may find my center of gravity in interpersonal relationships. When I draw life and meaning from any other source than my belovedness, I'm spiritually dead. When God gets relegated to second place behind any bauble or trinket, I have swapped the pearl of great price for painted fragments of glass. Who am I? Asked Thomas Merton. And he responded, I am one loved by Christ. Is that how you identify today? You can, or you can again right now. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you that you have made us for yourself. We thank you that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, when we put our trust in you, we find that we are adopted as your very own sons and daughters. That we could say to the question, who am I? To respond, I am one loved by Christ. God, we pray that that would be true for each person who's listening today, maybe for the very first time today. That maybe they would say to you, Lord, come and and be number one in my life. God, I confess that I need you above everything else. Or maybe it's for those who need to come back again to that place because something else has been more significant to their sense of security or identity than you. So Lord, we open ourselves to you, open our hands and our hearts. Come and be our loving leader again. And Lord, may that be what drives us as we experience you as at the center of our hearts that we would then be able to, with love and truth, make you known in our world. For your glory and honor, we pray these things. Amen.